Hello and welcome to Ditching Hourly. I'm Jonathan Stark. Today I am joined by guest Dennis Gontaroff. Dennis, welcome to the show. Hi, hello. Glad to be here. Before we get started, could you tell folks a little bit about who you are and what you do? Yeah, sure. So I'm actually a quite a recent graduate. I've been working for four years, mostly in the aluminum industry. So as a process engineer, mostly working on process control and data analytics. But since two years, I started freelancing, which means that I did data work for mostly corporates or startups, unfortunately quite general, so without a specific niche. And since then, I've actually closed this business again to become full-time employed at an aluminum factory. I have done that for one year and have since last week actually quit this job to try a second time to become a soloist. Mm, cool. Very interesting. All right. So I already have a bunch of questions. What we're going to talk about today is positioning statement for this freelance business. And we've gone back and forth over email a little bit. I thought it'd be easier to brainstorm on the phone like this. So that's what we're going to do. And you can get a sort of a peek into the process that I would use with, say, a coaching student or something to kind of uncover a possible or maybe a couple of candidate positioning statements that then, you know, in this case, Dennis would would expose the market to and see if any of them clicked. So we're going to come up with what hypothetically would be an effective positioning statement, but you never really know until it does start to attract people who you want to attract, whether it actually works. All right. So a couple of questions on based just based on your bio. Did you say process engineer? Yes, that's correct. So explain what that is for someone who might not know. Sure. So my first job was an aluminum smelter and the aluminum smelting has a very complicated physical and chemical process involving lots of machines. So this process is steered by a big computer, by PLCs. And what my job entailed was writing the code. So the program that steered this process based on inputs like temperature and so on. Oh, fascinating. Okay. And you evidently went to school for that. Is that was your degree? Kind of. So uh, my degree was in metallurgy. So I did study aluminum in school. So I looked at metals through a microscope, which is actually not a software education. I actually pivoted more into the field of software due to my first internship, which was really about data analytics and programming. So it's not that I really went to school for it. Mm -hmm. Okay. It's an interesting overlap this sort of digital world interfacing with the supremely physical world. And Absolutely. That's why I love it. Yeah, it's really cool. Okay. So what, okay. So that was, that was helpful process engineer and then the code to run aluminum, the aluminum smelting machines process and with a background in microscope style metallurgy and okay. exactly. And then what is that what you were doing most recently as your full-time job that you just left? No. So actually, after two years working as a process engineer, I decided to write the data science hype wave, which is in full swing in 2018. And I actually switched away from the industry to join a consultant and do some freelancing. But the long story short, I focused exclusively on data, data science first, but data engineering second, eventually. All right. So what, again, for people who don't know, what's the difference between being a data scientist and being a data engineer? Well, that's a very important point, especially for this industry. The end goal is always data science, like building AI models with machine learning. The problem which occurred was that to build the models, you need data. 
And getting the data, especially in this industry, proved to be so difficult that an entire new discipline actually broke off the data science world to just build what we call data pipelines and data sources so that the data scientists can actually get easy access to high quality data. Mm. Yep. Got it. So it's like a supportive role for a data scientist in a large data team. Yeah, I've, I've, it's, unsurprisingly, this has been a, a problem in lots of different industries where they're like, oh, sweet, we can do machine learning, except for we don't have any data. Like machine learning works now, but you don't have any data, then there's nothing to train it on. So, or, or you have data, but it's garbage. It's a real pain. In fact, 80% of our projects at, at my last shop actually involve data engineering, even though they were like AI projects. So they're kind of putting the cart before the horse, it sounds like. Yeah. That might be interesting in t for, for what we're trying to do here. So could you tell me more about how common it would be for aluminum manufacturers to be thinking about instantiating an AI project? Is that super rare or is that like kind of kind of a thing that's being discussed in the industry? It's definitely a thing that's discussed in the industry, but it's a bit like uh, teenage sex, you know? Everyone talks about it, no one really does it, and the people <laughs> that do it are pretty bad at it. That's how I always describe it. Nice. Okay, what's important though is that there's interest. The, the teens are very interested in the subject. So that can be a hook to hang your hat on where they, you know, they're having this conversation maybe with their colleagues or their employees or their board or in their own heads. And if you can join that conversation where it is, that could be a foot in the door to talk about, you know, to kind of work your way upstream and say like, oh yeah, AI could really revolutionize the industry. And like, yeah, let's talk about that. And it's like, okay, where are you getting your, what data do you have? And they're like, I don't know. It's like, okay, let's talk about that. Cause that's a precursor, right? So it's, it could be the kind of thing where you get your foot in the door based on an existing demand or an existing interest or desire in the mind of your ideal buyer, and then kind of break the news to them that it's not that simple and that there are other things to be considered. And the, the one, at least, I don't know if it's just one thing that you do it. I mean, you seem to have a few different skills here. Uh, the mm -hmm. one you seem to be focusing on is data engineer, uh, but, you know, that might not be, I think from our email thread that they don't really know what that is. They've never heard of it. So it's just going to bounce off their brain. If somebody said, you know, you introduce yourself, oh, I'm a data engineer. And they're just like, great. <laughs> what kind of car do you drive? <laughs> like, there's just no follow-up question. Like, what's that? Yeah, absolutely. All right. That's interesting. It's so speaking of ideal buyer, who do you think is the right person to decide to bring someone like you in to a aluminum manufacturing business? So that was one of my main challenges. I can think of a company which could bring me in, but it's very hard for me to imagine like the actual employee at this company who I should target. But maybe it would be helpful if I read you my LFPS, which I have so far. Mm -hmm. So what sure. I said in my LFPS was that I help medium-sized aluminum manufacturers that want to become more digital as the first sentence. Mm -hmm. And I specifically mentioned medium size because in my opinion, the bigger companies, which most of them are, they are mostly being helped between quotes by large consulting companies like your McKinsey or Deloitte. Mm -hmm. So it's very hard to get into those companies as a soloist, I think. Mm -hmm. Could be true. 
how would you define medium size by headcount, by annual revenue, by output? So I think by outputs, like the production of aluminum in tons, but also by headcount. And I have this image in my mind because I operate from Germany in Berlin. We have a lot of what we call the Mittelstand in, in Germany. It's like a big um, um, agglomerate of medium-sized businesses, which in fact is the biggest part of the German economy. Mm. Okay. So like your average factory, so to speak. But for someone who's not, <laughs> like what's, <laughs> yeah, what's an average factory? About 700 employees, I would say, including okay. just shift workers. But like your department of, let's say, engineers and IT people would be like 100 people. Mm -hmm. That is a sweet spot for solo consultants, it seems. Uh, I've had personally and, and a lot of other students have success in that range because when they're smaller, they tend not to have the budget. And when they're bigger, they tend to have just hired or, like you said, use a McKinsey or Deloitte or someone. Mm -hmm. So... Well, that's very reassuring to hear. Yeah, and, and it's more likely that you can get access to the ideal buyer who is, if we worked our way down from the top, mm -hmm. the it's probably called a CEO or president. It's probably, it could be someone, you know, ideally that person that would make the decision to bring you in, but maybe it's not. They've got a lot of other things to worry about other than, than this kind of problem. So do they typically have a CIO or do they not staff a position like that? No, they do. It's important to note that in this industry, IT is mostly broken off into two parts, what we mm -hmm. call IT, like the information technology and OT, which is the operational technology. Okay. And it's basically the carpet side of the business is IT and the concrete side of the business is the OT, like all the machines, the networks of the factory. That's mostly OT. I think I should be focusing IT because although I don't know, I'm not, not really sure. Yeah, my gut instinct was OT. So, mm -hmm. so who leads the, the, uh, what, what's the actual word? I, I like the carpet and cement. Is that what you said? <laughs> yeah. Carpet and concrete. Carpet and concrete. And what, what's the O stand for again? Or operational? Operational technology. Okay. And what's the, is it, is there like a VP of uh, OT or is it a, a direct, who's the highest person on that pyramid? So there would be indeed some kind of, um, VP of OT. He would not necessarily be a software person, could also be more of a production person. Yep. Managing people that like, like with wrenches, right? That yes. Fix, fix machines, right? Okay. So maybe that's not a great fit. And then IT is, we're all used to that. I suppose people that are doing everything from making sure the Wi-Fi network works and the email accounts are set up and secure and all of that stuff, right? Exactly. It's basically a pyramid. And the closer you get to the uh, actual process, then it's OT. So it begins with like sensors, the network, the computers, PLCs, that's all OT. But then once you go more into, let's say, a database for planning or like an ERP system, which stands for enterprise resource planning, mm -hmm. invoicing, accounting, that's more IT. Yep. Okay. And then under IT, so where's, where, if we're dialing our Etch-a-Sketch knobs, yeah. the, the CIO or whoever, whatever the job title is at the top of the IT pyramid, they're worried about a lot of stuff that isn't op. Well, that's, that's not operational on the shop floor. So, you know, like Wi-Fi and other things that you just listed as well. So like, is there someone mm -hmm. on the carpet side of the, the room, carpet side of the factory that is specifically, maybe it's a director level or a VP level that's specifically in charge of 
maybe this is too specific, but software that is used in the shop floor in the operations side, or is that like, does that kind of fall to a, a random person? Like someone's just sort of picking up the slack there, or is it the case that most of these medium-sized aluminum manufacturers really don't don't handle their software at all? It's just something that the uh, that the suppliers of the the machines do. So no, it's definitely that they do handle it themselves. They often buy from vendors, but they still need to configure it themselves. Mm -hmm. And to answer your question about who to contact, I think a good point would be to focus on the middle of the different data systems. There's basically four data layers in manufacturing, and yes. each plant looks pretty much the same. And the system in the middle, it's called the level three layer, it's, uh, the MES, which stands for Manufacturing Execution System, is actually a place where both OT and IT work together. So IT usually manages the system, but OT relies on the system to plan their operations. Mm -hmm. Okay, and that's where you would want to interface. What, what are the le what the levels on either side of that? Sure, so let's begin. The first level is level zero, which is really like the sensor at your particular machine. Yep. Level one is like the logic that's uh, the data coming from the machine used for steering. Yep. Level two is called SCADA. That's basically a computer that operates a line, a number of machines. And then above level two, you have the level three, which is the MES, the management execution system. And that's responsible for basically tracking a work order through the through production. So it basically keeps track of what operations happened on which part and at what time. Mm -hmm. The level above that level four is called the ERP system. And that's really in the IT world, it stands for enterprise resource planning. Mm -hmm. That's basically everything to do with, with transforming a customer order into a production order and creating an invoice. And then they have a level five in theory, which is called the cloud. That's not very relevant for discussion. Mm, okay. And the ERP also handles supply chain and all that. Yeah. Well, I guess a part of the supply chain is also in the MAS system, but usually a part that's a difficulty about aluminum production. It's possible that you do one operation in one plant, then you have to ship the produced coil or aluminum bar on a train to a different plant somewhere in the world, do a second operation and keeping track of those coils is something that is still very difficult. So the inventory is handled at layer three or layer four? Layer four in general, but it, for example, it, if it goes from one plant to the other plant, it will have a, it will leave a trail in the level three system, the MES system of each of those plants as well. Okay. And you feel like MES is the, is the place where it's most likely that these, these two things intersect. So it's like the most likely place. So I wonder, I wonder, so in my mind, that seems correct. I also wonder if the ERP level might be an interesting place for you to, you to maybe not start the conversation, but at least play around a little bit in that space because it's a little bit higher altitude. It's a little bit more in the IT world mm -hmm. and a little bit more CIO. And in, yeah. unless, I don't know, is there in a medium-sized company like this, would there be anyone dedicated specifically to dealing with the ERP or is that? Yeah, there's usually one person. So even, even at a large company, there's usually one contact point for each system. Okay. And do you, off the top of your head, do you know that these titles or, or examples of titles for those two levels, three and four? 
it could very well be that um, they have, would have MES or ERP in their job description, but probably not in their job title. So I would aim at some kind of IT manager or, or supply chain manager. Mm. Maybe to answer your question, why I'm, I try to aim more towards the lower levels because that's the level two and the level one. That's where all the process data, like temperature, speeds, forces, and so on reside. Yep. Um, and I think those, that data is most useful for AI because it allows you to improve operations. And that's just where all the money is. If you can improve production, that's where all the big cost savings can be made. Right. Yeah, that's where you would do your work, but I'm talking, but positioning is about attracting the buyers. So it might be that there are buyers at that level, but I would tend to doubt it. It's not usually the case, but you could correct me if I'm wrong. Mm -hmm. When I see, when I see manager in a job title, that's probably lower than, I mean, it might be a good place to start, but it would be better if it was like director or higher. Okay. Uh, it might just be different in, in your locale or it might be different in this industry uh, i haven't talked to somebody in this space in a very long time so it mm -hmm. it could just be different but you know a manager doesn't in the us at least doesn't generally have the kind of budgetary control or autonomy that you would want they're almost always going to be having to not not be able to make the decision and then they have to make a case on your behalf to someone to approve the expenditure and I would rather have you talking directly to the person who can decide and allocate the funds. Ah, that's a good point. Yeah. Yeah. So, so let's just say who would an IT manager report to? Like, if you think of the place that you just left, who would the IT manager report to? CIO so or is there someone in the middle? The VP, like the VP of operations, because I tend to focus more on the concrete side, um, because IT in the end of the day, they will not really benefit from my uh, solution, right? So maybe they would not want to buy it. Like oh. if I'm managing email and Wi-Fi, I'm not really going to be interested in buying a software that improves, let's say, throughput or efficiency of the machine. Don't right. You think? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Operations might be a better way to go. So if so then who would the VP of operations report to? That would be, I think that's already pretty high. That could be the, the CEO could be the next level, actually. The VP, yeah, in our company where I actually left, he had the VP of operations and he reported directly to the CEO. CEO or COO? Uh, CEO, Chief Executive Officer. Okay. There was no COO? I think, no, there was, but um, that person was really on the IT side of things, not the OT side of things. Really? That's, I'm kind of surprised by that with such a physical business, but okay. All right. Then I am sold on the VP of operations as a potential ideal buyer because they've got close access to the CEO. What you do is so technical. The CEO is probably the right company for this is probably somewhere where the, the CEO has announced a vision for let's just broadly speaking say like modernizing the operations digitizing the workflows uh, for some very very strong business reason oh there's actually sorry to interrupt there is a okay. very specific term in our industry um, about exactly that it's called industry 4.0 maybe you've heard oh, about yeah, it. i have heard of it yeah yeah so the idea was it was actually invented 10 years ago to be a very quick revolution in terms of but apparently it wasn't so quick because a decade later, we're still almost nowhere. 
Right. That's like everyone knows Industry 4.0. It's just that AI now became part of it. I see. Yeah, because I, I know that from the context of IoT. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So, all right. So, it's interesting because you have a perfect buzzword, but it's old. So, it might <laughs> it might be, maybe AI will revive it. It sounds like that's what you're saying. It's still widely used. Everyone is still saying Industry uh, 4.0. It's still on LinkedIn. It's all over. Okay. And what... Why would a CEO who would be the person to drive that vision and say like, okay, here's the vision. We're going to, we're going to actually do this now that maybe, uh, maybe the, maybe the thinking is like AI actually makes this feasible. Uh, so we're going to finally make the leap into industry 4.0. What, what is the promise of doing such a thing or making such a, I'm sure a big investment of time, money, other resources, mm -hmm. retraining your employees. There might be retooling. Uh, you might have to put sensors all over the place. Maybe you didn't even do that yet. And what is the promise? I mean, it's got to be increased profits, but is there something more specific than that? Yeah, so one very big thing nowadays, which has been quite hyped up, was called preventive maintenance. So to give you an idea, when our hot mill, which is one of our machines, uh, stands still for one hour, that costs us about $100,000. So if you can somehow prevent the machine from breaking down or repairing it before it breaks down, then you can prevent such a cat uh, catastrophic uh, standstill mm -hmm. and save a lot of money. So preventive maintenance is one of the promises of AI. Okay. Did you call it a hot mill? Yes, a hot mill. We have a hot mill and a cold mill. Nice. I, I love the jargon. It looks just so great. Okay, so, okay, so that's a great promise. How would you... If, if a CEO was thinking about who would be tasked with, with uh, okay, let, let me back up. I'm going to paint a picture, right? So mm -hmm. some manufacturer, ABC Aluminum, is having an increasing number of hours of downtime. Mm -hmm. And the CEO flips their lid. They finally have had enough. Why can't you keep the hot mill running? And who do they yell at? So that would be the VP of operations, because at the end of the day, it's his or her job to have as many productive hours as possible. Okay, that's what I figured. So th this really sounds like the right person, I, I think. Okay, but we just got to trace it down now. So we've, we've gone up the organization to somebody who probably in this nightmare scenario, they're getting yelled at by the CEO and they come back and they say, all right, I've, I've you know, bring me solutions, VP. And the VP comes back and says, I've got a solution how would you let's say they magically found you and you came into this situation is there something that is there something that you can do to move this needle in the near term or are you kind of way downstream from this like you can kind of help as a component of the thing like, like how much of a contribution could you make to helping this vp of operations calm the ceo down so I think it's more the latter. That was one of my fears. I think it's unrealistic to develop complete solution, meaning from data infrastructure all the way to the final model for one person. Yeah. So I think I'm more of a part of the solution. All right. So here's a, uh, maybe there's another way to ask the question. What would they be considering? Like, what would they Google for? What, what who are the 400 pound gorillas in this space? If that doesn't translate, who are the obvious people that they would call? I mean, I guess we're, we've implied already that they're not, they can't afford McKinsey or Deloitte because 
that's why you picked this size business. So let's rule them out. Mm -hmm. And what are the what are the other things that they would consider? Is there anything off the shelf? Is there a band aid? You know, is there a quick fix or um, a sort of deferred maintenance technical debt thing that they can do? Uh, mm -hmm. Like, what are the different ways that they would try and placate the CEO? Yeah, so my first job was actually at such a medium-sized manufacturer. And what they did is that instead of looking for outside resources, which are expensive, they also don't know that they're soloists. So it's either hiring like a Deloitte or McKinsey or hiring no one. What they would do is basically yell at the process engineer who is responsible for that particular machine and ask him or her to fix it. That's actually a second good person to contact because their bonus directly depends on the performance of the machine. What was that title again? Process engineer. So basically my Oh, your old job. job. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I like I, I like this. This could be our Trojan horse into All right. So so the process engineer whose language you could surely speak. Oh yeah, that's actually the reason why I focus this. Yep. So the process engineer. All right. And the and the pain that you help them with is you can help them with preventative maintenance you can help them keep the machines running around the clock or whatever the whatever the yeah i guess our first step would even be just to diagnose because what happens is that he gets yelled at and then has to look through a bunch of excel files or databases to try to figure out what's wrong with the process mm. basically sifting through lots of data and wasting lots of time because they not, don't necessarily have the right skills and the right infrastructure at their disposal to do this work efficiently Interesting. Okay. Now the process engineer, I mean, you could surely answer this because you were one, like, what are we talking about salary wise and responsibility wise for someone just in a range? You don't have to say what you made, but it's pretty high paid professional. They're quite rare because they need an engineering education, uh, also some experience. So it's one of the highest, highest paid employees who is like not a manager. Mm -hmm. So are we talking like at six least, figures um, at least? Yeah. Six figures for sure. In the US for sure. Okay. And how many of the, if you went on LinkedIn right now and you Googled for process engineer in search for process engineer, you know, like these kinds of people, how many would you, do you think you'd find? How many do you think there are? Uh, quite a lot because for each machine center, you need one. So for each department, you need at least one. And I'm quite lucky in the sense that I, try to always keep a good network of ex-colleagues and friends. So I know quite a bit of process engineers myself personally. Mm, mm, okay. I know I'm jumping all around here, but we're, this is kind of the way it works. How often on average do you think they're worried about, about what, what's this downtime? I guess downtime, right? Mm -hmm. is, it, is this a constant every week kind of thing that they are, their top priority is to mitigate downtime or is it just something that, you know, once or twice a year, it explodes and they get screamed at and then they scramble and and then keep their fingers crossed, and do whatever they can with the Excel spreadsheets to hope it doesn't happen again. Like, is this like frequency wise, how often does this happen? Well, it's a very stressful job because downtime is perhaps not as frequent. It can happen a couple of times a year, mostly not. But they have plenty of other problems, like, for example, delays, production delays, um, mistakes in planning, or just uh, problems with quality. Okay. So they're constantly stressed out. What are the top three things stressing these people out? Delays in production because of 
parts that don't arrive, uh, mistakes that people make, things that break down, but also quality. Like if you produce aluminium, that's my first job, for example, mm-hmm. the process can go wrong in a lot of ways. And the quality of your aluminium is not a constant. It depends on things like impurities and so on. That's also something that they have to monitor. Mm-hmm. Okay. So production delays, quality control, and was there a third? I guess, yes, uh, um, safety. So one, the top priority of every plant always has to be safety of um, employees. Mm-hmm. So they take it very seriously. So whenever someone like falls or sprains an ankle, it's actually a huge deal because they have to document it. They have to do interviews. They have to see what they can improve. Okay. So safety is also a very big point. Okay. So of those, so, so I've got four things here. Downtime, it's rare, but it happens. Production delays, it's probably more common. Quality control is probably a constant. And then safety is a constant. So of those, uh, I'm guessing you can't help with safety. Or is, is that not true? Well, it's not something that I can necessarily help with. But it's you have actually a safety engineer or even a, like a VP of safety at plants that just do that. Okay. All right, so I'm going to cross that one off. The the downtime production delays and quality controls seem like they're right up the alley of someone like you, right? Yes, and, because data plays a crucial role there. Okay, so just taking some notes. All right, does this person you again? You'd know this since you were one, and I can't even over I can't overstate how useful it is to have been one of these people. Um, do you have a budget that you control? No, I don't, because I was more of an, let's say I was hired as a process engineer, but they actually put me in front of a computer to program stuff. So I had no responsibility over, let's say, people. That was mm-hmm. one job that was offered to me. I refused it because I wanted to be a software guy. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, but generally speaking, do these folks have control over a budget? I should ask. I'm, I'm not, I'm afraid to answer the question. I'm not sure. But mm-hmm. I think they do. Well, definitely the VP of operations does, and that's who's yelling at them. So, so yeah, absolutely. it would be nice if they did, because you could probably, I mean, I can remember uh, my one corporate job that I had a director level boss who could pretty much at will spend 5,000 bucks on whatever he felt like, like one, once a week or once a month some on some schedule. And it was like very clear, you know, oh, wow. and, and he was like, what am I going to spend it on? And he, you know, he was, he would have a lot of different potential things to spend it on anything from like a new giant rack mounted hard drive or something or tape backups. This is a long time ago uh, or, or whatever, whatever was the, the top of mind thing in the department that he was responsible for that had a chip in it pretty much. So everything from printers, you know, it's a different, different kind of person than a process engineer, but uh, director level was, I think it was one level higher than, yeah, it was one level higher than manager, but he did have a certain amount of control. And then if he needed to, to get something approved, he, his direct boss could approve things, you know, like, I feel like I remember talking about 30 to $50,000 usually for hardware, but, but, you know, that kind of mm. thing was his responsibility. And he and if he wanted it, he got it. Okay, that's actually it. Made me think of it because there's a level in between the process engineer and the VP of operations, mm-hmm. and that's the department manager. Because engineers work in departments, for example, a cost house or an electrolysis department, and each department has a head. 
And this person for sure has a budget. I actually know a person like that personally, mm-hmm. and he can just swipe, uh, swipe a card and buy a project or a tool. Yeah. Right. And they probably have some limit per month. Yeah. So, okay. So, so it could be the department manager or the process engineer somewhere around there. Maybe it's it probably, I'm thinking less so it's VP of operations. Although if you, for example, had an opportunity to speak at a conference, you would want a whole bunch of VP of operations in the room, even though they might not be your ideal buyer initially, but for working your way in, it seems like it could be true that operating in familiar territory where you've got to still have a lot of connections would be an easier way into the into the building so to speak that's interesting i never thought before of separating who i contact to get a foot in the door and the person i'm actually helping or selling to yeah i mean ideally you it would be the same person but sometimes it's just very sometimes they're just it's impossible or infeasible to get direct access to your buyer. So you need to go through some sort of internal recommend recommender, uh, mm-hmm. someone who that, that was how, you know, with, with mobile, that's the way it worked with me. I, I wrote a book for developers, other developers bought it. And then when the boss came rolling in and was like, Hey, we got to do something about mobile. Who should we call? Do you guys, do you guys and gals know how to do it? No, but this guy does. And they all pick up the book and say, we should call this guy. So that's a riskier, longer term approach. It's not as direct and it, it can be problematic. It works when it works, it works great um, because you're the name on everybody's lips when someone asks for a recommendation. Mm-hmm. But you could, in theory, well, it sounds like through your network, you could find, you could pretty easily find out what is a department manager's sort of budgetary, what, what's their discretionary budget and then design something around that, that it would be easy for them to swipe a credit card. So if it's 5,000 and you had some kind of productized service that you priced at, uh, oh, I don't know, 4,500, and mm. it promised certain outcomes or certain, you know, it, when I say outcome, it could be clarity, it could be recommendations, it could be a roadmap, it could be an audit, feasibility audit. There's a, a bunch of things you could probably do for that amount of money that would that would be a great way to add some value, give them positive ROI. And then perhaps they say, you know what, we love these recommendations. Could you give us a proposal to, to do it, to execute against this, uh, or at least help us do it, like oversee, help, you know, be available in an advisory capacity as we, I don't know, deploy a sensor network or, or whatever. I think that's a great idea indeed, because I think it's going to be very hard for me, like without a book, without a, without a big reputation to sell a big consulting gig. So I think of uh, getting my foot in the door with some kind of product service, like a workshop. I've done those before, so I've done some courses. Cool. Okay. So. Cool. Okay. So what, uh, I don't want to get into the products quite yet, but we could. So what, what are some of the productized services you've considered so far? So you've done a workshop. Yeah, so I've basically sold two programming workshops about Python and R, but those were one was for students of a university and the second one was basically well, also for students, uh, honestly. The second product I sold was basically for an old colleague who is also a freelancer and he just needed a tool to visualize a bunch of data. Mm-hmm. And he just paid me like, ah, oh, I know Dennis, he knows the data, so I'll just pay him an amount and he'll build it for me. Oh, so it wasn't training, it was... It was 
honestly, it was a favor. You know, I think the guy just really liked me. <laughs> okay. Yeah. All right. So let's see here. If the let's just assume that both the process engineer and the department manager, I think you call them, mm -hmm. they are interested in in decreasing downtime, decreasing production delays, and increasing improving quality, or or improving quality control. Mm -hmm. What can you do to help move those needles? What can you contribute to to their situation that would? keep that promise, so to speak. It's like if you if they come across you and you're like, I can help you decrease down time, increase, uh, decrease production delays and increase quality control. And they're like, well, that's okay. But how? What would you what would you say to the how? Mm -hmm. Well, the first thing I would mention is that they probably underestimate the effort it's going to take to obtain the data. So I would basically try to explain that it's not a data science problem, it's more of a data engineering problem. That before they start to talk about AI or maintenance, they really need to focus on their data infrastructure. Okay, so that you started off a little bit down the road from where I was. So let's back up a little bit from there. So they say, uh, they say, oh, hey, we we someone recommended you. We saw your website. We understand that you. All it says is that you can do those three things. You can improve those three metrics for medium-sized aluminum manufacturers, and that's us. Or mm -hmm. even more specifically for department managers of medium-sized aluminum manufacturers. All right, great. How do you do that? And then just how, how do you, how do you, even if you weren't going to contribute to it, like, let's just, let's start here. What are the steps or maybe what are the questions that you would ask to start to, to qualify them as a lead or qualify their, their current situation? Like maybe they do have great data. So what, like, what are the questions that you would ask? So I would try to get as much information I can about their current data infrastructure. So what kind of systems they have. I probably know already what they have because it's pretty similar in most plants. Um, I would try to ask them if they have already had any experience with building AI projects, like data projects, and what tools they use to currently monitor the process. But they may say like, oh, we use a tool like OSSOFT SPY, or we have this data historian. And that gives me an idea of how mature they already are in their digital technologies. Hmm, let's let's stay here. Let's let's iterate on this. I'll be I'll be you. This is going to be hard because uh, <laughs> you you might have to help me, but with my words. But then you be the client, mm -hmm. and, okay. and imagine in this process that that you can probably you can probably guess what they're using because most people do. But let's just say, first of all, you definitely want to validate that because it could be an exception. But the other thing is you want to identify you want to identify to them that that you're just super familiar with the industry by asking incredibly smart questions, even though you probably know the answer already. Mm -hmm. So so they say, yes, we want we'd be interested in talking to you about improving these three metrics. How do you do that? And you say and you'd probably say something like, well, I can help people what uh, i help people implement industry 4.0 project or transformations with ai get started down the path to to this kind of transformation how would you how would you put that 
So I think I would focus on the point that lots of the missed problems that happen, like delays, the preventive the, uh, machine breakdown, mm-hmm. is because people don't monitor their data. They don't keep an eye on it. So, to so let's, do, more- let's do it that way then. So, so what would you ask me to find out whether or not we were organizationally, we were doing a good job? So are you still the client or are you now? Me? Uh, yeah, I'm, now I'm, now I am the client and you're you, sorry. So how <laughs> would you, how would you ask me to validate the maturity of the operations with regard to so, data? Well, let's focus on maybe the production delay. I would ask, well, why, like, how big is your delay? Mm-hmm. And maybe they will say, oh, well, we are like 50 anodes behind, or we are 50 coils behind schedule, mm-hmm. or like two days behind schedule. But then at least I know that they have a number. Some companies don't even know how badly they are doing. Okay. So let's say I said, uh, yeah, we're two days behind. Then I would try to figure out why they think this happened. So mm-hmm. that but that's a difficult question even for them to answer. It's could boil down to, oh yeah, well, we had this problem or the machine broke down or I'm basically trying to gauge how much they observe their own data. Okay. So just someone looking. Yeah. So just, so, so just, let's just do it. I'll keep being the client. You asked me how long is your delay? I say, I were like two days behind Then What would you ask without assuming nothing? Just ask me a dumb question. So does this happen often? Are you often two days behind? Perfect. Exactly. So the answer is we're pretty consistently at least a day behind. Uh, Right now, it's a little bit worse than usual. Mm -hmm. Well, then something must have happened, I guess. That's not a question, though. So so put it like ask me the next question. Mm -hmm. So can you repeat uh, what you said? It's like, did something change is kind of like the next question. Did still. Mm Right. Like, ah, something change. Right. Like, ah, I don't know. The the Wizzy Bob thing broke down. It, it's breaking down a little bit more. And then you would probably ask me something about, well, what are you doing for monitoring preventative maintenance and so forth? Yeah, exactly. Like when did it break down the last time? Yeah. Just like, ah, I don't know. I think it's, I think it was, I don't know. It was maybe last two months ago, maybe. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Oh, this is and hard. then you say, where would you look to check? Right. Then, like it is, uh, how can you know the exact time it, uh, it broke down? Yeah. Is there some way that you could check? You'd be like, well, we've got it in an Excel document, but we don't really keep them that up to date. I could ask the, the shop manager or something. He might remember. Yes. They have to dig it up basically. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. And so, so you could, you could, by asking these, like the smallest possible next question, it's kind of like troubleshooting a, a software bug. You know, is the yeah, computer like a doctor's visit? Yes. Is the computer plugged in? Okay, we've got that established. Is mm. it turned on? Okay, we've got that established. Is your Wi-Fi enabled? Okay, we've got that established. Just like the dumbest, dumbest questions. But if you skip over them, then you you get lost. You get you find yourself like stuck. So so if you just kept asking me dumb questions and you it started to reveal that to me and to you that are that that our data is f- inaccessible if it exists at all and that it would be very difficult to dig it up you could probably talk to someone and 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 mm. have that epiphany moment right yeah and actually it's also the process often leaves 
clues as to what's going to happen. So often post factum, you can actually see at your parameters, your values, and could have known that something bad was going to happen. Mm -hmm. But because people weren't looking, it happened without noticing. Right. So, okay. So if you got to this point where we are now and you were like, okay, their records are perhaps not that great, perhaps not that up to date, and they're definitely not looking at them. They don't have quick access to them. Then I would say something like, do you think it would be useful? Do you think it would decrease downtime if you had real-time instant access to certain parameters that, I don't know, maybe you could suggest? Like, do you think that that would be beneficial? Yeah, and I think it just needs, sorry, uh, just think of a story uh, to get more concrete maybe. Mm -hmm. We had once this problem in our process where one sensor broke down uh, and no one really paid attention. But this sensor basically told, hey, the feeder to this particular um, oven is not working. And so the oven wasn't fed for a number of, like, I think for two days, which caused like a major problem down the line. Mm -hmm. If they had just kept an eye on this one sensor, they would have known that there is a problem and would have prevented the, the issue. Right. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 obvious when you put it out, so when, you, when you put it like that. But there's some reason that they aren't looking at it. There's so, too much work to do. All right, so why don't you hire more people to kind of have someone who's in charge of just manually updating this stuff and sending a report out daily to everyone? Well, they do this like an intern, which was my very first like uh, pre-job, so to speak. Mm -hmm. So, and I actually helped to install a system that basically and mail the daily reports of some mm -hmm. very important KPIs. Mm -hmm. Oh, that'd be another great question. Do you know what your most important KPIs are? You know, if you had time and mm -hmm. energy mm -hmm. and, and processing power to track KPIs more closely, maybe closer to real time, or at least daily, do you, what ones would you look at? Yeah, there's actually one major one, which is very important for each plant. It's called OEE, it stands for Operation equipment efficiency mm -hmm. and in a nutshell it basically denotes how quickly you produce parts of good quality which percentage of the time it's like a number between zero and 100 percent so zero being you produce nothing at all and 100 produce only good parts as fast as possible with no downtime mm -hmm. okay great so you could ask i mean it would would literally every department manager or process engineer be aware of this metric no, uh, some plants even don't calculate it. Oh, interesting. So you could say something like, uh, are you are you calculating your whatever you said it was? Yeah, I could, I could, for example, I would say, hey, what's your OEE? And they would say, mm -hmm. well, we don't know. And I'm like, oh, I can build it for you because you have to know. Like <laughs> so you're jumping too far. You're, yeah, you got to you got to like lead the horse to water, though. So, they, <laughs> you know, they could say we don't know or we don't know what that is. Hopefully they would say, we don't know, like, that would be great to know, but we don't know it. And then you, let's say that was mm. the answer. We, that would be great to know, but we, we don't know it. We don't keep track of it. And then, mm. then you could go down the path of why aren't they? So how just, you just say, how come you're not, how come you're not tracking that and find out all the yeah. obstacles? Right. Mm -hmm. And I guess they would say something like, yeah, well, it's just hard to get the data. It's in all those different sources. It has to be joined and we don't have anyone. So basically it's IT's job to do it, but they're not doing it. It'll be something like that, I think. Mm, okay. Yeah, that's probably, that sounds pretty classic. All right. Well, whose responsibility would it be to fix this issue? So like IT is not doing it. You could, you, you need it. Is this something that you could take responsibility for if, if you had someone to do it? You know what I mean? Like 
So that's what I would ask them, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. So the ideal person to do this job would be the process engineer because he has the knowledge. Unfortunately, he is actually not, it's not really an office job. He is part-time in the office, but he's also very often on the concrete side of the building because when something breaks down, he has to go there. So ideally, this person has a lot of ideas that he wants to implement, but he doesn't have the time. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so that's where you start to, so like that point, it'd be interesting to be having this meeting with the department manager and the process engineer in the same call mm-hmm. and have mm-hmm. the process engineer chime in about, you know, in, in answer to some of these questions, like how come you're not tracking it? And the process engineer is like, it's just, there's just too much to do. I got to run over to the, the floor and like look at stuff manually and dig through Excel files. And he said, well, if there was a solution to that, would it be useful? I mean, it's, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it seems like it'd be super useful if you could track this number mm-hmm. on a daily basis. Right. And mm-hmm. you see if they nod and then they're going to say something like, or you could prompt it. What would that entail? Like, how would we even do that? And then you could say not pitch, but you say, well, step one would be, we need to find out if the data exists at all. It doesn't always, maybe it does here. Maybe you know that already, but the data, first of all, doesn't always exist. So we have to validate that it exists. We have to validate that it is correct. We have to validate that it is in a format that we can consume in some kind of automated fashion. And, and then the next layer up from that is synthesizing the data. Maybe AI comes in at that point. Uh, mm-hmm. Maybe it's later, but then you could just quickly lay out like three to six steps in the data pipeline or whatever you call this from mm-hmm. let's say from the sensors to a dashboard like all like what are the six stages that you'd need to see kind of have like a, a report card or a, a health checkup for each one of these steps and be like well how do you how would you do if, if i asked you do you have all the data you need that you know on a scale of one to five would you say yes or no you know on a scale of one to five would you say you you probably are capturing all the data you need and they could break themselves there like, do you think it's clean and complete and accurate? They could rate themselves there. And then whatever comes after that, you know, you could maybe, like I said, have three to six stages where they could kind of mm-hmm. do a self checkup with you right there and say like, well, you know, and what's probably going to happen, at least in other industries, what happens is a good buyer for a productized service, which is what we're talking about here, a good buyer will not know the answers to these questions and not even know or have the time to get the answers. And they're going to feel stupid that they can't. So you could say something like, and, and maybe this was the whole premise of the phone call in the first place, so you're not springing it on them, but it's like, well, this is what my my audit, you know, my $4,500 audit does. Like I would come in... <sighs> and fix all of these things. But what you've done is you've walked them slowly, carefully into this place where they're forced to admit to themselves that they've been dropping the ball and that things really could be better and they know it. And then, Hey, here's a, and this is not coercive or manipulative. It's all true. You're just asking them questions and they're just forced to admit to a sort of third party that things are not in order, which I would just, I would think, for a manufacturing company in Germany would not be the kind of thing they'd be proud of. So, <laughs> right. So it's like, yeah, well, absolutely. you can write me a check or you can swipe a credit card for 4,500 bucks and I can start on Monday and here's how it would work. And you just mm-hmm. say, I would meet with these people. I would do this. I would need access to this. And then at the end, you know, bop, 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 these steps, it'll probably take 
X number of hours, roughly X number of hours across the course of three weeks. I would need time with these of your employees. I'd need about this much time from you folks. I'd need this kind of access. And then at the end, I'll have a roadmap for how you can get from this place where no one's looking, you know, no one can hear the fire alarm going off. Mm. You know, it's like having no batteries in the fire alarm. It's like, well, we've got fire alarms. Yeah, but the batteries in them, <laughs> you know, so it's not doing anything. And I can get you from, from not knowing what to do about it to knowing exactly what to do about it and having a sort of level of effort, perhaps even with a budget and a timeline for what that project might look like. I mean, that's, that's the output of a good roadmap or whatever you call it. Mm -hmm. I really like the approach of asking questions to let them get there because the problem, if I would just arrive there and say, Hey, your data is bad, they would be probably offended. And yeah, totally. Right. You need, you need to just ask questions like a doctor. A doctor's not going to be like, oof, you need to stop eating as much, <laughs> right? You're eating way too much, obviously. You, you just don't, that approach, it's not, uh, it's not that useful. It gets people to get defensive, mm -hmm. uh, especially if the CEO's on the call too, right? So like, you, you don't want to be pointing fingers, making assumptions. Oh, yeah. You want to ask, you, you want to ask the smallest step the smallest next step question possible, what I was calling stupid questions before. It's like, it's like, it's gonna sound like a dumb question, but you know, are mm -hmm. you guys tracking uh, OEE? And they'll be like, yeah, not really. I mean, we collect the data, but then we never aggregate it. And even if we did, no one ever looks at it. So, so, so yes mm -hmm. and no. And then you can just say, okay, well, it would it be a priority to, I mean, if you, if it was easy, would you look at it? You know, if you're getting alerts right. and stuff like that, like what if it what if it jumped in your face when it was hitting the red zone or whatever? They're like, oh, that would be amazing. And it's like, okay, well, you know, anyway, we already did that part, but but it's I think it's really important to phrase everything in this kind of disarming, innocent question kind of way. That might be a better word for it, just like innocent questions. I mean, I know it's an American thing, but I always point to this old old TV show called Columbo where this guy, Columbo, Peter mm. Falk was this Columbo guy and he would just, he was a detective and he would just, he was just such a disarming, goofy character. And he would say like, I, I just don't understand. I can't understand how you, can you help me understand <laughs> why would, why would somebody put an eye hook in the ceiling right here? I just don't understand it, you know? And you just sort of like, not trick, but like, I mean, we're talking about criminals here. So he's kind of tricked them into or back them into a corner, really. And in, in, in a sense, in a model like this, you're backing the client into the corner of, of really facing reality so that they can, you know, then decide potentially to do something about it if there's an easy solution sitting right in front of them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that role fits me quite well because I'm actually not that experienced. So I can play it pretty naturally, I think. Oh, good. Yeah. All right. So if we now that was a whole that whole conversation was a sales conversation, but it helps me to understand what you might want to say to position such an offering. So if the pain here is the, the metrics we listed, downtime, production, delays, quality control, and the dream is 100% uptime, no production delays, uh, 10 out of 10 on the quality control or like an OEE of 100 or whatever yes. you said. Then, right. It's like, then that's the dream. And then, and then the fix is you cannot get from where you are to where you want to be 
without and then you you tell me what you would call it but like a real time like data pipeline I, I think time series data plays into this somehow like you need data you need data. yeah i would call it a proper data infrastructure that unites both time series data and like relational data mm -hmm. okay. in one place right so you you need a unified access or some kind of however you decide it's to funny say you it. mentioned unified because the there has been a solution in the industry uh, being hyped up as the unified namespace hmm. as the central location where every data all data basically collected you have to imagine basically we have all those different systems level one into level four they all are very different so the problem that we try to solve was basically by combining by basically connecting all this data to one central database which is called unified namespace that basically organizes all this data in a neat structure, which is easy to understand for mm -hmm. a human. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. Perfect. So that's the solution, but it, that might not be that might not be the solution you provide. So there's a there, but maybe it's discussed. And now we're kind of I talking. Think it will be. Speech. It will be. For example, it can be built incrementally. So I, for example, build a small unified namespace, a small database where I connect just the systems that they need for their particular use case, mm -hmm. and it can grow. Perfect. Yeah, that's perfect. So for the productized service, productized service would be this sort of diagnostic with recommendations. And then the, the probable next step, if there's, if you still want to work with them and they, they, they're still a good fit would be to help them in, in some capacity, implement this unified namespace, like an MVP, minimum mm -hmm. viable product, like the, the 80, 20 role, you're just going to build the top three things or whatever, the smallest version of this, the so phase one. And you could, you could give them a, a three option proposal of three different ways that you could work with them to make that a reality, to get them to that phase. And then once that's over, then, you know, move on to some other, perhaps phase two or different relationship, or you move on to a different mm -hmm. client. But, but so from a positioning standpoint, if we go all the way back, Is really the title is department manager? Is there there is there no name of department? Yes, for example, I worked at the electrolysis, so electrolysis department, and oh, sorry, it's called electro department manager, so it would be like the electrolysis manager. Actually, let me Google this person on LinkedIn just now. Maybe I can yeah, check that out. So his name is. Chef de service electrolysis in French. So no, it's actually really like the chef of the electrolysis department. Oh, chief? Is it chief? Yeah, well, it's in French, so... Tough to say. I, yeah, so it's like chef. It's like heads. Heads would be the translation. Okay. Head of the electrolysis department. And is that... Are there lots of different... Like, do process engineers report in different departments or would all of them be in electrolysis? Sorry, the name is Reduction and Gas Treatment Centers Manager. So I guess he's responsible for both the reduction department and the gas treatment department. And he's like the manager of that department. Mm. Interesting. Okay. So this is, sometimes it is the case that, the, that there are lots of different titles for the kind of thing that we're looking for. So I don't, it might be a little bit difficult to come up with one or even a handful of them, especially if we're like dealing with language translations on top of it. But the idea is that, that whoever process engineers are reporting to is probably your ideal buyer for now. Mm -hmm. And 
and you could perhaps network to them through process engineers or, or just through colleagues, past colleagues, and, and start asking these kind of innocent questions about uh, mm -hmm. OEE, you know, like just, I'm doing a survey, I'm surveying the, the space and for, for aluminum manufacturers of your size, I want to find out how people would sort of self-report their OEE, I almost said compliance, their OEE <laughs> awareness and get a sense like on a scale of one to 10, how often do you check your, I don't know how to say it right, but like how aware of it, how aware of your OEE measurement are you and how accurate do you believe it is and how important is that to your day-to-day -day decision making so something like that just a quick little survey and maybe do that do a linkedin survey and share it with just people in your network process engineers anybody that works really anybody that works in one of these types of mm -hmm. target businesses and find out the answers to those questions it'd be really interesting if, even if you got only 20 replies it'd be really interesting because that might be the the words to choose to to begin the conversation because if that's a key metric and not even everybody's tracking it and that would be the first thing that you would probably do or i'm putting words in your mouth is that the first thing you would probably do is try and make that number more accurate and available yeah absolutely because basically this number denotes how much money that the plant makes oh hello got my that made my eyebrows go up so yeah, you could potentially sort of be an evangelist for the this target market to get better at tracking that number more accurately and quickly in real time, and then find all the objections. So surface all the objections, like like if you didn't rate yourself a ten out of ten, like why not, or anybody below like a a, a seven, like oh mm -hmm. you know do you have an initiative in place to improve this number or is it no big deal or you know, what, what are the objections? How come you haven't, how come you're not working on it if you're not? And mm. if you can find out those objections, then you'd be able to address them in your marketing and be like, oh, you know, process, process engineers too busy. Well, you know, you, you could hire someone to just, you could hire a consultant to come in. It's like, well, McKinsey's too expensive. It's like, well, what if it was only 4,500 bucks and it was only <laughs> going to take two weeks? It's like, well, that's pretty interesting. Yeah, one question about that number. Um, what in the case if I'm wrong, and for example, it's maybe not, for some reason, not our biggest concern, or maybe they already have it. Would it make sense to, if I was to send a bunch of emails into asking for interviews, or should I include like maybe other metrics or other problems, or should I really focus on maybe only one metric? All of this is hypothesis. This is this is mm -hmm. us brainstorming, and it's just ideas to start conversations and see if anything clicks. Sometimes they're like, sometimes, not most of the time, but also not, it's not super rare. You might immediately get like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah that would be amazing. You know, you, we like, we nailed it in the brainstorming session. Mm -hmm. Most of the time it's close enough that they're like, well, no, not really. But the thing that we really care about is this, Okay. you know, so then you would use this to uncover what they really care about. So there's a million tactics we could do that to find that out but i kind of want to zoom back up unless you have like a quick question no that's fine it's just that it's also new to me because i'm very technical right so i'm used to knowing everything up front with certainty and it's basically stepping out of my comfort zone to try to work with hypothesis right yep. trying to experiment yeah
this is exploratory, right? It's like you're, you're, yeah, that's, that's a great point. Actually. I was just talking to someone with someone about that. I think it might've been Rochelle on the business of authority. And we were talking about how this sort of, it, it can be uncomfortable. Yeah, it was that episode. We, we were talking about the difference between exploration and expedition. So when you know where you want to go, right, you have the answer and you just need, mm -hmm. need to get there. And like, there's going to be a million decisions, but you know where you're going. That's the feeling that you're used to. Mm -hmm. And, yeah. but you can't, it's too many assumptions in that when you're working with a brand new client, way too many. You need to go through an exploratory phase first where you find out the specifics of their, their weird idiosyncrasies and nuances and, and desires and drivers and hopes and dreams and fears and all of that stuff. And you can't, at this stage, maybe, maybe in five years when you've done had a hundred clients like this, you could just build a product and be like, look, here's, here's the state of the industry because I'm in a position to know, and mm. here's what everyone's doing wrong. Here's what everyone needs to do better. And like, at that point, that's a different game. You know, you can do a cold read, just immediately skip over all of these steps. But right now it's more exploratory when you first meet someone. So it would be, and it can be uncomfortable as you pointed out, but I, it's very, very effective. I would have got to hear it's a viable path because I had this, I guess, false impression that I was supposed to know everything if I'm hired as an expert, but that's not the case, as you're saying. Well, you have to find out, so you can be the expert at what you do, but you're not the expert of their business and you're not the expert of their organization. There's no way for you to know that. You can make guesses, but you can't know it. Mm -hmm. you, know, you don't know who the troublemaker employees are. You might find out that someone's sabotaging the data. I mean, you just <laughs> don't know. There's just no way to know from the outside. You can make assumptions and use those to ask questions that kind of lead the, the client down this path, but it's way too soon to prescribe anything. Always think like in a sales interview, every single time I'm like a doctor, try and be mm -hmm. like a doctor. First, do no harm. Do not assume that you're going to give them a triple bypass just from looking at them because a lot of people need triple bypasses and you know, you're a person, so you probably <laughs> need one. So it's off-putting and it's often wrong. Things are much more nuanced than that. So yeah, so in the sales interview, you just be very, or even any conversations leading up to creating the productized service, whenever you're talking to people, just ask these sort of innocent, maybe slightly naive questions in a self-deprecating way. It's like, I know this is gonna sound like a dumb question, but I don't wanna make mm -hmm. any bad assumptions. And you know, how would I know what it's like inside your organization? So, you know, with that context, and then you, you could just ask some, you know, questions that are probably that you might already know the answers to, but you want to make sure you do. Yeah, that sounds great. I can do that. Cool. So, okay. So like our reason for being here though, is positioning. So if we, if we just thought of a hypothetical positioning statement could be something like I help process. I, I wish we had a clearer title. We, Let's just use VP operations for the time being. I help mm -hmm. VP operations for medium-sized aluminum ma manufacturers increase their OEE score. I mean, that's not great, but that's the shape. That's a shape. Mm -hmm. Another one could be, I don't like this as much. It's pretty, it feels kind of tropey or trite, but like I help medium-sized manufacturers make the leap to industry 4.0 
That's that sounds so bad to me compared to the other. Yeah, one. no, I wouldn't do that one. Honestly, that's. Yeah, it's too same. I'm sure there's a thousand people with that same positioning. You could say something like you could pick one of the three big things like downtime. You could, or, but no, I don't like that one. Production delays is probably much more common. You could say, you know, oh, like I help process engineers or their bosses or, or people who people who employ <laughs> process engineers decrease production delays at medium-sized aluminum manufacturers. It's like, huh, that's pretty specific. <laughs> you know, so th these are kind of like the first half of an LFP. Or, you know, it's kind of like the, the, the core value proposition of an LFPS. We haven't really said what your title is, and I kind of don't care about your title, and I almost feel like in email you said that they don't know what data engineers are. Yeah, to be completely honest, I don't even care about my own title. I just want to solve the problem with data in the industry, whether I'm a data scientist or engineer, an IoT engineer, to me, it's really not important. I don't want a job. Yeah, yeah. I don't think the disciplines is like super important here. You could just, you could say something like data consultant, manufacturing data consultant, or something like, I don't know if I would say software. A data professional or something. Mm, I would say consultant or advisor, consultant. one of the two. I think data consultant is pretty common. Yeah. It's fine for the discipline to be common. It doesn't matter. Either you want to go, you really want to go left field with your discipline. Like so weird that people ask you questions about it. Like remarkably weird. Like uh, one of my students, Corey Quinn, he just named himself a cloud economist, which just forces people to be like, what is that? <laughs> yeah. Or, you know, if you're like a dog lawyer, what is it? Like, what is that? So it's almost like a joke. It's like an icebreaker. Mm. But mm -hmm. if you're not going to do that, then the discipline doesn't really matter that much because it's going to come out in conversation. But people's brains want to label someone with a job title. So you want to do one that's accurate, but kind of vague. So data consultants good because then you can that can kind of Rorschach test itself into whatever it is they think they need. Yeah, I like it one too. I actually yeah. first omitted it. I just said I help medium-sized aluminum manufacturers, but maybe it's better to have it some title after all. Well, the LFPS includes the four main components of a positioning statement, but you don't you don't necessarily use them all in every situation. There's different situations where you'd want to use them. So you know, if someone if you met someone at a party and they say, "What do you do?" You could say, "I'm a data consultant." You could say, "I'm a data consultant for medium-sized aluminum manufacturers." You could say, "I help." aluminum manufacturers make more money or I help aluminum manufacturers increase their OEE score. There's different contexts. You're going to use it in different, mm -hmm. different ways. But the, the nice thing about having an LFPS is that it covers all your bases for like any kind of question you might get. So if you said, right. a, yeah. So like on your business card, it might say data consultant. And then like the main part of the card says, I help, you know, process engineers <laughs> improve their OEE scores. It's a funny story because I didn't realize it. I'm not supposed to read the whole thing. So when someone asked me like the other day, hey, what do you do? I was like, I'm going to practice my LFPS. And I just read <laughs> those two very long sentences. And they were like, what? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I call that the cocktail party answer. You need to have a cocktail party answer version that's like five or six words or like very, you know, like a small number of syllables. So it doesn't feel like you're giving somebody a lecture. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, okay, so we'll just go target market for now, although I would love it if we could switch to ideal buyer. I, I think I may focus actually on aluminum smelters instead of manufacturers, Ooh. because it's a very vast industry and aluminum factory is just way too big, uh, I just realized. Love it. I like that a lot better. 
And, and are there huge aluminum smelters or are they all basically medium-sized businesses? It's a bit of a mix. I think there are some, well, most of them are big companies, but honestly, the plants, they, the companies became big because of takeovers. So even though it's one company, they still have very different cultures. I love it. All right. I'm a data consultant who helps aluminum smelters and then pick, uh, we've, we've picked a bunch of potential expensive problems. Eliminate downtime, decrease downtime, decrease production delays, improve quality control, improve your OEE score, improve their OEE score. You could really test any of those and see which ones yeah. resonate. And then your unique difference is this can be very hard to determine if you don't know who your competitors are. So maybe you do know who your competitors are, or maybe you just know that your background is super unique. It's yeah. actually the both because to give you an example, I had this email today from a very general data consultancy agency and they just didn't, they emailed me personally to improve my process with AI. It just didn't speak to me because it was too general. It's not about my business. So I think what makes me different different is that I have this both education and the work experience in this vertical. Yep. So I think I'll try to focus on that. Yeah. So what I had up to now was unlike general data professionals, comma, I rely on my metallurgical education and aluminum industry experience and to design a simple but robust software solution that automates repetitive data operations. Yeah, yeah, it went on for too long, but that the beginning part was good. It was, it was solid. So, mm -hmm. because you, you, you flipped into pitch mode. Yeah. It's like, just tell me what's different, what's different. And the difference is that, that unlike, unlike general data yeah. professionals, I rely on my metallurgical education and aluminum industry experience. Yeah, you just say I have, yeah, I have a background in metallurgical engineering and have worked inside the industry or however you put it. But yeah, just keep it yeah. simple. And yeah, that's solid. I think this is, again, hypothetically speaking, I think the data consultant piece, maybe there's an improvement you could make there, but it probably doesn't matter that much. Mm -hmm. The aluminum smelters I absolutely love. Might not be great, but I love it. So do you mean it's fine to leave the company or should I look for a person at such a smelter to contact I, or to focus? Ultimately, it would be great if you could find your ideal buyer. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But today, I don't know that, honestly. Yeah, today you don't know. So so we're, we're a little bit, so in a sense, it's it's pretty specific. Aluminum smelters, I mean, I've never even heard those two words together before. There are not so, that many, honestly, in the world, like 30, maybe 50 in the okay. world, I think. All right. Well, this is a, that's a great starting market to start out with. If you could laser it down to a particular person inside of the organization, I think process engineers is a smidge too low. It's probably who they report to or the VP of operations. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that could be VP ops could be the target, but I think for now, aluminum smelter is where I'd start. And yeah. the expensive problem, you want to pick the most expensive one that's that the most exp combination of expensive and urgent. So downtime thing, unless it just happened to them, which is probably, it could be a bad time. Mm. It, could be a, it could be a very, like a, not a great. So one problem time. we have specifically at smelters is that they have often hundreds of machines in parallel in series, like 360 cells. Oh man. And also the, um, Quite often, one of those breaks down. I think it happens almost monthly. Mm. And that's a very big problem because then mm. the whole line shuts down. People have to wake up and go there and fix it. So. so now check this out. By focusing down on smelters specifically, downtime became 
instead of once or twice a year, maybe to once a month, probably. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So that, so I, I really like that. So I'm a data consultant who helps aluminum smelters decrease downtime. So your cocktail party answer could be like, oh, I help aluminum smelters decrease downtime or, or keep the machines running. I should really like it because that's exactly, it's, it sounds very, very real. Yeah, it's like at that perfect level where it's not too specific, but it's specific enough that it sounds doesn't sound like BS. It doesn't sound like, oh, but we I solve hard problems for smart people. And it's like, what? <laughs> you read the whole website and you still don't know what they do. Yeah, exactly. No, I like it a lot. Cool, great. All right, so it sounds like this has been helpful. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, thanks a lot. I think it's much more specific. Great. Yeah. The only I mean, question I may have is like my homework. Like, how would I go to validate this? Right. So I there's a couple of ways to do it. It depends on how public you want to be about it. One common way is to update your LinkedIn headline to just say, "I help aluminum smelters decrease downtime." Mm-hmm. And and maybe you could say maybe you could phrase the decrease downtime in a way that's a little bit more in their jargon. You know, like keep the concrete side of the business running. You know, something like that. Mm-hmm. running smoothly I, I don't know it's, but but essentially the message that you want to get across is that you can help them decrease downtime and then I would reach out to people in my network it's interesting because you've got so many connections already but so okay but basically I would update my headline like that and I would update my about section to make sure that it kind of aligns with that and it's not too pitchy it's like it's more about the expensive problems that you solve mm-hmm and then I would start connecting with people in the space like crazy. So, you know, just connect, 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 connect with people. And then when someone accepts your connection, they're going to see your headline. You know, it's like your name and then it's going to say decrease downtime. And you can ask them, a, you could have, uh, you take a second to like research their profile, see if they post anything and look for a question to ask them. Something that you're mm-hmm. curious about maybe you've got three to six kind of stock questions that you'd like to kind of survey this group. And maybe you just say, maybe you've got a survey ready to go and you say, Hey, you know, thanks for connecting. I've got a, a 30 second survey that I'm, I'm trying to survey the aluminum smelting space. And I, you know, would you have 30 seconds to share your expertise? Just check a couple boxes. And you know, if they say, Oh, I'll take a look at it, send it over. And then maybe they give you the answers and then maybe you, have some follow-up questions about the answer, just DMing them on LinkedIn mm-hmm. and eventually get to a place where you say something like, you know, what's, what's your biggest headache where you guys are, your personal biggest headache where you guys are. And maybe they say something like human resources type of thing, like, oh, management, yeah. this management stuff is the biggest problem. And you're like, well, specifically with regard to operations, you know, like, like keeping the machines no well i don't i don't want to put words in their mouth so it's like is it what's more important to you guys like avoiding downtime or improving quality control something mm-hmm. like that so you can just start to find out what is going to attract people's attention when they see it like so if you're walking in the drugstore and you've got a migraine and you see a, a jar of pills that says migraine you know quick migraine relief it's going to jump off the shelf at you visually so you want to find the thing that's going to have the, the expensive problem, the migraine headache that's going to have people jump off, you know, have you jump off the shelf at them. So they start to reach out to you and say, hey, I noticed that uh, you help people with, you know, 
increase, decrease in debt, whatever the expensive problem is, how do you do that? Or maybe they look at your activity stream, your feed and LinkedIn, and they say, oh, this, this guy's some kind of a data consultant and helps people with this their data pipeline and dashboard, whatever, executive dashboards based on sensor data, who knows, like whatever. You want to find out how they think of it and then slot yourself into the places where it's appropriate to start the conversation. And once you've got a feel for that, then it would be like, I guess in, in parallel, you would also be sort of iterating on what the product life service is, the roadmap thing. Like, what is mm -hmm. that? What is the description of it? How would you do it? But also what is, what would a sales page look like? And what's the appropriate language to put there for these people that you're having conversations with on LinkedIn? Would the results of this survey be something interesting for my daily newsletter? Sure. I, I would think so. Yeah. And you could even have people like it could be a lead magnet. So you could, you could post a survey like a type form or Google forms or something and just DM the link to people or say, you know, ask them first, it would be okay if I, I give you a link to a survey, I'm trying to survey the industry. I'm sure some number of people is gonna say sure. And then say and in the form, it's like, if you'd like to see the results of the survey enter your email address here. Mm -hmm. That's a good, good idea, yeah. So that, I mean, that's just one way that's like, a, it feels pretty appropriate for where you're at to start to kickstart your mailing list and and the survey is going to give you tons of ideas for the mailing list. Almost. Yeah, almost for, for sure. sure. Cool. Well, this has been okay. fun. Is there anything else you wanted to No, cover? I think I really know how to get started. I mean, I've learned a lot. I had some very big misconceptions and I think they're all mid dispelled. So thanks a ton, Jonathan. I'm really, cool. I'm really grateful for this. Cool. No, I, super helpful. I appreciate you taking the time, sharing your expertise with that space. It's almost virtually completely new to me. And yeah, and I imagine that there are going to be people listening who really get a lot out of it. Yeah, I hope so too. So where could people go to find out more about you, maybe get in contact with you, maybe introduce you to some product process engineer bosses? <laughs> like sure. So I think there's two places. The first one is LinkedIn, which is my uh, first name and last name, Dennis with one N and then Goncharov, that's G-O-N-D-C-H-A-R-O-V. And also my personal website, which would be Goncharov.eu from European Union. Perfect. Thanks so much, Dennis. Thank you. All right, folks, that's it for this week. I'm Jonathan Stark, and I hope you join me again next time for Ditching Hourly. Bye. Hey, Jonathan again. Do you have questions about how to improve your business? Things like value pricing your work instead of billing for your time, or positioning yourself as the go-to person in your space, or maybe productizing your services so you never have to have another awkward sales call or spend hours writing another custom proposal. Book a one-on-one -on -one coaching call with me and get answers to these questions and others in the time it takes you to get ready for work in the morning. Best of all, you're covered by my 100% satisfaction guarantee. If at the end of the call you don't feel like it was worth it, just say the word and I'll refund your purchase in full. To book your one-on-one -on -one coaching call, go to jonathanstark.com call. C-A-L-L. -L. That URL again is jonathanstark.com slash call. Hope to see you there.